Hey, it's Guy here. So as you may have heard, there's a brand new host of the TED Radio Hour. Her name is Manoush Samarodi, and she and the team are busy producing a bunch of new episodes, and you'll start to hear them beginning in March. In the meantime, I want to share some of my most favorite episodes of TED Radio Hour from the seven years I hosted the show. And this one, it's all about the world of numbers and how math can answer some of life's most complicated questions, like can we ever find love? Or why is this drumbeat so catchy? And how did tiny little Yoda lift that enormous X-wing out of the swamp in The Empire Strikes Back? This episode is called Solve for X. Enjoy. This is the TED Radio Hour. Each week, groundbreaking TED Talks. TED Talks. Uh, TED. TED. Technology. Entertainment. Design. Design. Is that really what it stands for? I've never known that... Delivered at TED conferences around the world. the gift of the human imagination. We've had to believe in impossible things. The true nature of reality beckons from just beyond. Those talks, those ideas, adapted for radio. From NPR. I'm Guy Raz. Back in 2009... This guy named Randall Monroe volunteered to teach a weekend class at MIT to a bunch of high school students. They have a program where people can come in and teach classes on whatever subjects they're interested in, and a bunch of students come and sign up and and take them. And I had some friends do classes on root beer tasting, and other ones do a class on, uh, you know, programming. So Randall decided to teach the one subject he knew a little something about. So I did a class on the physics of energy. Because he'd studied physics in college. But on the first day of that class he was teaching, when he was giving his first lecture... Well, I was, I was talking about how you can define this quantity called potential energy, and you can calculate if you lift an object that weighs, you know, five kilograms through a distance of two meters then it will have about 95 or, you know, 100 joules of potential energy. This approach, of course, uh, well, not a big hit with the kids. The students got kind of bored, just like I always did in physics lectures. And at that moment, it occurred to Randall that he was just throwing numbers at these kids that did not apply to anything in their world. And it's just as abstract for me. You know, I never run into a five kilogram weight in my life. You know, I, I run into like gallons of milk or, you know, a cat might weigh five kilograms. And then standing in front of his class that day. I realized that part of what makes math and science so exciting is having questions you want to answer. So he thought, what kind of question would you want to answer if you're the kind of high school kid who signs up to take a class on the physics of energy on the weekend? And at that point, I had a moment where I thought, wait a minute. The Empire Strikes Back. Specifically? Um, this question. When Yoda lifts Luke's X-Wing out of the swamp, how much energy did that take? Use the force. Yeah. Right, that scene where uh, where Luke's fighter plane is trapped in the water. Mm-hmm. And it's a really straightforward calculation uh, if you can figure out the mass of the X-Wing. All right, I'll give it a try. You know, and how high he lifts it. Try not. Do. And uh, do not. what the strength of gravity on Dagobah is. There is no and the students suddenly got really interested in figuring out, okay, how much does an X-Wing weigh? Is there a canonical value for the gravity on Dagobah? Like, oh, well, there's a Star Wars Wikipedia. We can look up the weight of the X-Wing there. And they were suddenly, like, kind of running ahead of me and figuring things out before I could even get to them. And I realized, like, oh, this is the missing piece. Size matters not. Look at me. Judge me by my size, do you? Hmm? Answering these interesting questions... All right, it's time to embrace your inner nerd, because today on the show, we're solving for X. Stories and ideas about how numbers shape our world and our lives. How people talk about themselves, how people interact with each other, how people present themselves when they're looking for a partner. When I listen to other musicians, I say, man, he really sounds good when he does that. You know, what is that? How do we even get our heads around the algorithms that are used online when we create mathematical models of such complexity? And most importantly, the question Randall Monroe asked that day in class, how do you make math interesting? I think that a lot of the time, it's easy to get the impression that math is sort of supposed to be interesting for its own sake. 
But really, to me, what's exciting is the answers that the math can get you to. You know, I don't care what x is. Like, an equation doesn't mean anything until it's representing a real thing. By the way, after crunching the numbers, Randall and his physics students eventually calculated that it took Yoda 19.2 kilowatts of energy to lift that X-wing fighter, or about what it takes to power a small tractor. Later in the show, Randall answers more questions that I promise have never occurred to you. But before we go any further trying to solve for X, a more basic question. What is X? Ah, X is the unknown. But why X? Why not another letter? Terry Moore wanted to find out. Yes, exactly. Terry directs an organization that promotes mathematics, and he told the story of why X is X on the TED stage. About six years ago, I decided that I would learn Arabic, which turns out to be a supremely logical language. To write a word or a phrase or a sentence in Arabic is like crafting an equation because every part is extremely precise and carries a lot of information. That's one of the reasons so much of what we've come to think of as Western science and mathematics and engineering was really worked out in the first few centuries of the Common Era by the Persians and the Arabs and the Turks. Uh, this includes the little system in Arabic called algebra. And algebra roughly translates to the system for reconciling disparate parts. Algebra finally came into English as algebra. The Arabic texts containing this mathematical wisdom finally made their way to Europe, which is to say Spain, in the 11th and 12th century. And when they arrived, there was tremendous interest in translating this wisdom into a European language. Okay, so they start translating algebra f- from Arabic into Spanish. So what the, what's the unknown in Arabic? What's the X? It was originally the word she'on, which means something. 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 Some undefined thing. The problem for the medieval Spanish scholars who were tasked with translating this material is that the word she'on can't be rendered into Spanish because Spanish doesn't have that sh, that sh sound. So by convention, they created a rule in which they borrowed the ck sound, the k sound, from the classical Greek in the form of the letter chi. Later, when this material was translated into a common European language, which is to say Latin, they simply replaced the Greek chi with the Latin x. And once that happened, once this material was in Latin, it formed the basis for mathematics textbooks for almost 600 years. But now we have the answer to our question. Why is it that X is the unknown? X is the unknown because you can't say sh in Spanish. (laughs) And I thought that was worth sharing. So... This was kind of like a big misunderstanding, really. Like, it could have been Y, or it could have been (laughs) Q or B. It's certainly possible, and to some degree it was um, arbitrary. But the origin is that Arabic word, shayon, which means something. Had they chosen a different word, we probably would be referring to the unknown quantity by some other letter. Yeah, what if X was B? Then everything would be B. We'd have like the, the B-men and Malcolm B. And B That's marks right. a spot in the B-files. That's right, and, and Project B. It would ruin everything. <laughs> Thank the gods it was the X. Well, we're used to that now. Do you like algebra? Yes, I love algebra. Well, why? Uh, because it's beautiful. How? How? I keep hearing that. I, I hear mathematicians say it's beautiful, and then you like see these movies about these crazy geniuses <laughs> and like scrawling on the chalkboards, and it's, it is kind of nice actually. But but I still don't get it. Uh, I think that's a matter of temperament. Huh. There's some people to whom a mathematical proof appears as a thing of beauty. It speaks of a higher truth. It speaks of a harmony to knowledge, the fact that it works at all, (laughs) let alone that we can understand it, speaks to a larger category of existence and knowledge. 
Terry Moore. You can see his full talk, Why is X the Unknown, at ted.npr.org. So we're going to be hearing a lot of these drum beats throughout the show today. These drum beats are the work of Clayton Cameron. I'm a provocateur of rhythm. <laughs> Clayton's drummed for a few musicians you might have heard of. Uh, including Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin. As well as Sammy Davis Jr. And here... With Tony Bennett. Clayton Cameron! Anyway, we asked Clayton to do some of the music on the show today and to talk about an idea from his TED Talk... An idea he calls... A rhythmatic. A rhythmatic. <laughs> Basically, it's a way to understand how numbers and rhythm intersect. An idea that had never really occurred to Clayton until he moved next door to a mathematician. And we were talking, and I'm no mathematician, okay, by any stretch of the imagination. However, um, uh, he said something to me that I never forgot. He's, he, he said, you know, those are really some beautiful numbers. Like, yeah, so were you just talking, like, about a beat or a song or, or something? And he's like, yeah, yeah. Those, are, those are beautiful numbers. Absolutely. Huh. And I said, wow. I said, if you're at, you're at a certain level with math, I guess they could be beautiful numbers. And um, then I had a conversation one day with a friend of mine who's an incredible drummer, musician named uh, Marvin Smitty-Smith. I said, Marvin, there's a track you do. I said, there's no way you could be thinking about this music the way I'm thinking about it because you make it seem so simple. Huh. And so Marvin said, well, I, I, I just think in cycles. And then he didn't have to say another word. I knew exactly what he meant. And so uh, between numbers are beautiful and, you know, I just think in cycles from my friend Marvin, all these things started coming together. So you started noticing, like, these cycles of numbers uh, in, in the rhythms that you've been playing for years? Absolutely. Now watch this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to play something, um, two different evenly spaced uh, beats. One will be three and one will be two. So we have one, two, three, one, two, three. One, two, three, one, two, three. So I'm going to give you a different sound in my left hand. I'm going to play just two beats in, within the same space of time. So we have one, two, one, two. It sounds like this together. What ha- watch what happens when I double it. Now watch this. I'm going to double it again. Whoa. It's the same ratio, and all I did was yeah. double the tempo. It's the same pattern. So when I break down these cycles and groupings of numbers and how they feel, I mean, three has a certain feel, uh, a cycle of three, a cycle of five has a certain feel, a cycle of seven has a certain feel to it. Um, Yeah. And certain numbers in music emote a certain feeling. Clayton Cameron, he'll be back later in the show with more hidden numbers in music. We're solving for X on the show today, uncovering how numbers shape our lives. More in a moment. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to two of our sponsors who help make this podcast possible. First, to Traditional Medicinals. Traditional Medicinals is the herbal tea company that lives up to its name. Traditional because of the formulas based on herbal traditions that have supported health and wellness for centuries. And medicinal because of the ethically sourced high-quality herbs like wild-collected shisandra berries in their everyday detox tea. Use promo code RADIOHOUR for 20% off at checkout. Powered by Traditional Medicinals. Thanks also to First Republic Bank, whose first and only business is client service. They work with you to create customized financial solutions that support your unique needs and goals. Reach out today and you'll be connected with a dedicated banker who will always be your first point of contact with the bank. Because they understand your total financial picture, they can recommend the services and products that are right for you or your business. To learn more, visit firstrepublic.com.
News breaks and big stories change every day. That's why we're giving you NPR's 10-minute morning news podcast on Saturdays, too. I'm Scott Simon. And I'm Lulu Garcia-Navarro. Up first, start your day with us weekdays at 6 Eastern and Saturdays at 8, a bit later to suit your weekend from NPR News. It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, we're solving for X, the hidden numbers that shape everything around us. Like, say, for example, when you flip through the radio dial. When I hear music these days, I wonder why I'm hearing this particular song. This is Kevin Slavin. What it is in my behavior or the behavior of others or whatever produced this particular track at this particular time. Kevin runs a research group at MIT that's obsessed with algorithms. And he thinks that we're now living in a sort of age of algorithms. Our lives are made up of a series of decisions. What time does the train arrive and what's on the radio and what's happening to my retirement stock? And more and more of those decisions are made automatically by machines increasingly without human supervision. So here's an example from Kevin's life. So yesterday I had to make my way from New York to Boston, so uh, I need to take a flight. And so I went online to one of the sites that just sort of lists, you know, what all the prices are. And what's the price of that ticket? A chain of complex calculations figured out. Routing where the fuel depots are, projected seat fill, weather patterns, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And once Kevin arrived in Boston, he decided... I'm going to call for a car, and so I use Uber. But then an algorithm decided... What's that going to cost? Is it going to cost whatever it costs, or is it going to cost 1.2 times that? Is it going to cost 3.9 times that? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Then once he got home... My wife and I are expecting a child, so we uh, we were ordering... Is this um, your first child? It is, yeah. Congratulations. (laughs) Thank you. Um, So uh, we're sort of looking to see, okay... Which crib? And if you shop on Amazon, like Kevin does... A lot of sellers on Amazon aren't actually setting the prices themselves. They're actually just using small algorithms that are looking at the prices of other cribs on there. And that changes changes all the time. Yeah, it changes many times in a second. So the price that we paid may never have been actually approved or even considered by a human at any point. In fact, Kevin says you can find these kinds of things wherever you look. Here he is on the TED stage back in 2011. And so Netflix has gone through several different algorithms over the years. They started with Cinematch, and they've, they've tried a bunch of others. There's Dinosaur Planet, there's Gravity. They're using Pragmatic Chaos now. Pragmatic Chaos is, like all of Netflix algorithms, trying to do the same thing. It's trying to get a grasp on you on the firmware inside the human skull so that it can recommend what movie you might want to watch next, which is a very, very difficult problem. But the difficulty of the problem and the the fact that we don't really quite have it down, it doesn't take away from the effects that pragmatic chaos has. Pragmatic chaos, like all Netflix algorithms, determines, in the end, 60% of what movies end up being rented, right? So one piece of code with one idea about you is responsible for 60% of those movies. So if you need to have some image of what's happening in the stock market right now, what you can picture is a bunch of algorithms, and that's 70% of the United States stock market, 70% of the operating system formerly known as your pension, (laughs) your, your mortgage, And what could go wrong? A stunning and dramatic crash on Wall Street yesterday appears to be the... What could go wrong is is that a year ago, 9% of the entire market just disappears. In a matter of minutes, nearly a thousand point drop. And they called it the flash crash. Flash crash, which many people... Flash crash, as it was described. Flash crash of 245. Stocks go... All of a sudden, 9% just goes away. You know, Wait, look okay, at it. Look at it. Look at it. It's a fast market. It's a fast market. The market was so down 900 points. We're now down 688. And nobody to this day can even agree on what happened. And that's the thing, right? This is that we're writing things. We're writing these things that we can no longer read. And it's, we've, we've rendered something kind of illegible. And we've lost 
the sense of what's actually happening in this world that we've made. That's, that, that's crazy. It is crazy, right? And so, so one of the questions is, when we create mathematical models of such complexity, and let's remember that any given algorithm within the stock market is impossibly complex, and then it is the interaction of all of these complex algorithms with one, with one another. This is far beyond what any human could ever, ever hope to understand. And it doesn't leave a forensic trail that provides an explanation. It just provides a bunch of data. But you're saying that, that, that actually increasingly we're solving problems in a way that we don't really even understand. That's exactly the point. I think that's, that's one of the most important aspects of what's happening. And I think that characterizes our time. So let me take it back to Wall Street, okay? Because the algorithms of Wall Street are dependent on one quality above all else, which is speed. And they operate on milliseconds and microseconds. And just to give you a sense of what microseconds are, it takes you 500,000 microseconds just to click a mouse. But if you're a Wall Street algorithm and you're five microseconds behind, you're a loser. <laughs> so if you were an algorithm, You'd look for an architect like the one that I met in Frankfurt who was hollowing out a skyscraper, throwing out all the furniture, all the infrastructure for human use, and just running steel on the floors to get ready for the stacks of servers to go in, all so that an algorithm could get close to the internet. And you think of the internet as this kind of distributed system, and of course it is, but it's distributed from places, right? In New York, this is where it's distributed from. It's a carrier hotel located on Hudson Street. And this is really where the wires come right up into the city. And the reality is, is that the further away you are from that, you're a few microseconds behind. But if you zoom out, you would see an 825-mile trench between New York City and Chicago. It's been built over the last few years by a company called Spread Networks. This is a fiber optic cable that was laid between those two cities to just be able to traffic one signal 37 times faster than you can click a mouse, just for these algorithms. And when you think about this, that we're running through the United States with dynamite and rock saws, so that an algorithm can close the deal three microseconds faster, all for a communications framework that no human will ever know, that's a kind of manifest destiny, and we'll always look for a new frontier. So basically, I mean, so basically, you could argue that our lives are controlled by algorithms. I think it's more, the, the word that I use is shaped. Um, the rough edges of what determines our sense of the day are, in fact, sort of hinted uh, by these mathematical models that are all around us. You know, there's still an awful lot of things that happen in the world that uh, can't nobody predict and probably won't ever be able to. And I think that's great and that's fine. I just think that those unpredictable elements are have this weird kind of frisson with an increasingly predictable set of models that are sort of at every level of our lives. So there's a limit to all this. Yeah, and that maybe... Um, so there is a limit, but I think it's also... It's not just that there's a humility in being reminded that there's a limit. There's also a value in realizing that there's a limit. Um, I think that it's a reasonable dream to have that we can take a fundamentally mathematical model to everything in the world and then just solve all the problems in it. Um, but it's also, it's also fundamentally impossible. And I think that there's a, there's a great value in recognizing the idea of striving towards something impossible, but also the impossibility of the, of the task. Kevin Slavin runs the Playful Systems Group at the MIT Media Lab. Check out his talk at ted.npr.org. Earlier in the show, we met Randall Monroe. He has a physics background, but 
he now mainly writes and illustrates a really popular webcomic. It's called What If? And the way it works is every week, people write in questions for Randall to answer in the form of a comic. So, for example, what if you were playing baseball, right? And you were the batter. What would happen if the pitcher threw the baseball impossibly fast, like 90% the speed of light? Here's Randall's answer. So I did some calculations. From the TED stage. Now, normally when an object flies through the air, the air will flow around the object. But in this case, the ball would be going so fast that the air molecules wouldn't have time to move out of the way. The ball would smash right into and through them. And the collisions with these air molecules would knock away the nitrogen and carbon and hydrogen from the ball, fragmenting it off into tiny particles, triggering waves of thermonuclear fusion in the air around it. This would result in a flood of X-rays that would spread out in a bubble along with exotic particles centered on the pitcher's mound. Now, at this point, about 30 nanoseconds in, the home plate is far enough away that light hasn't had time to reach it which means the batter still sees the pitcher about to throw and has no idea that anything is wrong. Now, after 70 nanoseconds, the ball will reach home plate, or at least the cloud of expanding plasma that used to be the ball. And it will engulf the bat and the batter and the plate and the catcher and the umpire and start disintegrating them all followed by a blast wave spreading out, shredding trees uh, and houses as it moves away from the stadium, and uh, and then eventually a mushroom cloud rising up over the ruined city. So the Major League Baseball rules are a little bit hazy, but under under rules 6.02 and 5.09, I think that in this situation, the batter would be considered hit by pitch and (laughs) would be eligible to take first base if it still existed. This is the kind of question Randall answers every week in his webcomic, What If? Questions like, how fast could you visit all 50 states? Or how long would a staircase to space take to climb? Or what would happen if all the rain in a thunderstorm dropped at once in the form of a single raindrop? Short answer there, nothing good. In the case of the raindrop that's this big and falling this fast, when the bottom hits, there's so much more water coming and it's coming so quickly that there isn't enough time for the first part of the splash to get out of the way before the next part of the raindrop is already there. And this this causes a, a thin jet to shoot outward along the ground, uh, away from the point of contact, and uh, in sort of in all directions, you'll get these jets of water moving at, you know, uh, much higher than the speed of sound. Yeah, you would want to watch this from a from a safe distance away. Like from yeah, I would, a mountaintop? I would wanna, yeah, make sure to have a mountaintop. And, and even if you've got a mountain between you and the raindrop, you'd yeah. want to make sure you are not downstream of that raindrop. Um, how do you think? How do you think you approach something unknown differently than other people do? Well, I I have I have always had a little bit of trouble managing my uh, time and just clicking random Wikipedia links or reading random papers, and then before I know it, I've spent like three hours trying to solve a question that I'm not even going to write an article about. Um, and I, I once drew a comic about how you could sort of use this maliciously, this tendency that science people have, where I, I had a comic about someone who sat outside an engineering building by the side of the road. And when the physics professor was halfway across the road, they would hold up a sign with an interesting problem on it. And the physics professor would stop immediately to like and start thinking about, OK, how do I solve this? Take the square root of And then, wham, they get hit by a car. And, and so I invented this sport uh, that I called nerd sniping. But part of what I did with uh, my idea with what if is that I'm I'm nerd sniping myself. I'm getting all these questions sent to me that then I will have no choice but to try to answer. Like a couple of years ago, when he got the following question. Say all the world's known data were stored on punch cards. You know, those paper cards with holes that used to be fed into giant computers? A card punch translates words and numbers into the same information in the form of holes in cards. A typist with very little extra training can operate the card punch. Anyway, the question was, if we still store data that way, how much physical space would Google need 
to store all the data that Google has. Google, of course, wasn't going to tell Randall how much data they do have. So Randall came up with an answer he thought was plausible. I came up with my estimate, which I felt pretty good about, that was about, uh, about 10 exabytes of data across all of Google's operations. And, um, and then another maybe five exabytes or so of offline storage in like tape drives, which it turns out Google is about the world's largest consumer of. So I uh, came up with this estimate, and this, this is a staggering amount of data. It's uh, quite a bit more than any other organization in the world has, as far as we know. There's a couple other contenders, especially the, uh, everyone always thinks of the NSA. Adding all of this up, I came up with the other thing that we can answer, which is how many punch cards would this take? And so a punch card can hold about 80 characters, and you can fit about you know, 2,000 or so cards into a box. And you put them in, say, my uh, home region of New England, it would cover the entire region up to a depth of a little less than five kilometers, which is about three times deeper than the glaciers during the last ice age about 20,000 years ago. So this is, uh, this is impractical, but I, I didn't expect to get an answer from Google. Um, because, of course, they've been so secretive, they didn't answer any of my questions. And, and so I just put it up and said, well, I guess we'll never know. But then a little while later, uh, I got a message a couple weeks later from Google saying, hey, someone here has an envelope for you. So I go and get it, open it up, and it's punch cards. <laughs> Google-branded punch cards. And on these punch cards, there are a bunch of holes. You know, and I said, thank you, thank you. And then I was, OK, so what's on here? So I get some software and start reading it and scan them, and it turns out it's a puzzle. There is a bunch of code. And I get some friends to help, and we, we crack the code, and then inside that is another code, and then there are some equations. And then we solve those equations, and, and then finally, and, and out pops a message from Google, which is their official answer to my article. And it said, no comment. <laughs> So, and I love calculating these kinds of things. I just, it, I, uh, and it's not that I love doing the math. I do a lot of math, but I don't really like math for its own sake. Um, what I love is that it lets you take some things that you know, and just by doing these, uh, you know, moving symbols around on a piece of paper, find out something you, that you didn't know that's very surprising. Um, you know, and I have a lot of stupid questions, and I love that math gives the power to answer them sometimes. Um, and, and, and sometimes not. This is a question I got from a reader, an anonymous reader, and the subject line just said urgent, and this was the entire email. If people had wheels and could fly, how would we differentiate them from airplanes? <laughs> urgent. <laughs> and I think there are some questions that math just cannot answer. <laughs> Thank you. Randall Monroe, his talk is at TED.com, and his webcomic is at XKCD.com. On the show today, we're solving for X, how numbers shape the world. Next up, how one equation might help you find true love. W at T plus one equals little w plus RWWT plus IHM brackets HT. But this only maximizes your chances of finding the perfect person for you, uh, it doesn't guarantee it. I'm Guy Raz, and this is the TED Radio Hour from NPR. Hey, everyone. Just a quick thanks to one of our sponsors who helps make this podcast possible, Salesforce. Have you ever wanted to know what Salesforce does? Salesforce is a customer relationship management solution. They give your employees a 360-degree view of your customers. That makes it possible for every department in your company to work together as one to deliver the seamless, personalized experiences that customers want. Salesforce, bringing companies and customers together. Visit salesforce.com slash learn more. The world is complicated, but knowing the past can help us understand it so much better. That's where we come in. I'm Randa Abdel-Fattah. I'm Ramtin Arablouei, and we're the hosts of Throughline, NPR's history podcast. Every week, we'll dig into forgotten stories from the moments that shaped our world. Throughline from NPR. Listen and subscribe now.
It's the TED Radio Hour from NPR. I'm Guy Raz. And on the show today, we're solving for X stories and ideas about how numbers shape our world. You remember Clayton Cameron, right? Hello, hello, hello. Clayton, big-time jazz drummer, popping in and out of the show today to explain ideas from his TED Talk about how math and rhythm intersect. Yeah, it seems, uh, you know, just from the surface, if you said, you know, math and music, that, oh, well, that wouldn't swing or groove. Or, yeah, math is know, not groovy or swinging. Y- y- yeah. yeah, but, you know, when I listen to other musicians, I say, man, he really sounds good when he does that. You know, yeah. what is that? Now, I can listen to Phil Collins, Max Roach. I can listen to Tony Williams. These are all drummers, yeah. famous drummers. Yeah. Elvin Jones and all these. And each of their styles of playing... They're going to play different threes. Uh, threes? Absolutely. Uh, you know, like the classic rock beat, a uh, rock fill. So that's a group of three, that fill. Well, Max Roach, father of bebop drumming, along with another drummer by the name of Kenny Clark, they introduced syncopation into the music like it never had been used before. And so Max used to do this, this thing where he would, between his, his left hand and his bass drum and his cymbal, it would go... And so what you're hearing is... You know? In the move. So all those things have the groupings of three. It's three is like a magic number. It's like, I don't know what the explanation is. Three just feels great. Clayton Cameron, he'll be back later. This episode, we're solving for X ideas about math, or as our friends in the UK might say, maths. Let's talk about this for a sec. Why do you guys say maths? Well, this is like a massive issue. It's a big issue. People get really properly angry about it. There is a kind of joke in the UK where people say math, and then someone just goes, This is Hannah Fry. She's a mathematician. As far as I'm concerned, I struggle to find anything in the world that you can't get an interesting perspective on by using maths including perhaps the most mysterious, inexplicable part of life, which is, of course, love. You think that there's a connection between math and love? Like it can explain love in part? Well, so the thing is, is that in people's love lives, as in all of life, there are certain patterns in the way that people behave. Hmm. And math is perfectly placed to be able to take those patterns and translate them and then give him back to you with a little bit of insight wrapped up. That's so romantic. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Hannah's written about this in a book. It's called The Mathematics of Love. And it's full of lessons about how numbers can actually help us find love, including how to win at online dating. Here's Hannah's TED Talk. Right. (laughs) Okay. So my uh, favourite online dating website is OkCupid, not least because it was started by a group of mathematicians. Now, because they're mathematicians, they have been collecting data on everybody who uses their site for almost a decade, and they've been trying to search for patterns in the way that we talk about ourselves and the way that we interact with each other on an online dating website. And they've come up with some seriously interesting findings. But my particular favourite is that it turns out that on an online dating website, How attractive you are does not dictate how popular you are. Let me show you how this works. Okay, so in a uh, thankfully voluntary section um, of OkCupid, uh, you are allowed to rate how attractive you think people are on a scale between one and five. Now, if we compare this score, the average score, um, to how many messages uh, a selection of people receive, you can begin to get a sense of how attractiveness links to uh, popularity on an online dating website. And the important thing to notice is that it's not totally true that the more attractive you are, the more messages you get. But the question arises then of what is it about people up here who are so much more popular than people down here, even though they have the same score of attractiveness. 
And the idea is that if you're looking through people's profiles on OkCupid and you find someone and they're super, super beautiful, in your head you're thinking, they probably get loads of messages. There's not really much point in me humiliating myself by sending them a message. They're never going to reply. And you move on to the next profile. But then you see someone and you think they're really beautiful, but you also think that perhaps not everyone is going to think that they're beautiful. So maybe they've got loads of tattoos or, you know, crazy cut of hair or whatever. In that way, it's sort of less competition for you and it's an extra incentive for you to get in touch. Okay, all right, so if you want to get, like, more attention and, like, more messages to you, you want to play up the things that make you, like, a little weird or different, right? Yeah, because the people who like you anyway are still going to like you and the people who don't only serve to your advantage so in some ways you could argue that mathematicians are like have a an unfair advantage when it comes to (laughs) online dating (laughs) yeah i mean mathematicians famously brilliant at finding lovers are they really yeah oh yeah oh yeah (laughs) really who knew i'm joking (laughs) i'm so joking So let's imagine then that you're a roaring success um, on the dating scene. But the question arises of how do you then convert that success um, into longer-term happiness? And in particular, how do you decide when is the right time to settle down? Um, Now, generally, it's not advisable to just cash in and marry the first person who comes along and shows you any interest at all. Um, But equally, you don't really want to leave it too long Uh, if you want to maximise your chances of long-term happiness. So the question is then, um, how do you know when is the right time to settle down, given all the people that you could date in your lifetime? Now, thankfully, there's a rather delicious bit of mathematics that we can use to help us out here called optimal stopping theory. Um, Okay, so let's imagine then that you start dating when you're 15, um, and ideally, you'd like to be married by the time that you're 35. And there's a number of people that you could potentially date across your lifetime, and they'll be at kind of varying levels of goodness. Now, the rules are that once you cash in and get married, you can't look ahead to see what you could have had. Um, And equally, you can't go back and change your mind. Um, Okay, so the math says then that what you should do in the first 37% of your dating window, you should just reject everybody as serious marriage potential. (laughs) And then you should pick the next person that comes along that is better than everybody that you've seen before. Hannah says using this idea from math, it's called optimal stopping theory, can dramatically increase your odds of finding the perfect partner. So say you dated like 20 people in your life. Well, if you just picked one of those 20 people at random to marry, there's a 5% chance you'd have found your perfect partner. Which is like not very good odds, really. But if you dated the same 20 people and you flat out rejected the first third? You then can up your chances of finding the perfect person to almost 40%. Wow. So from going from one in 20 to more than a third, you've just massively changed your chances of finding them. But this is all a matter of probability. I mean, there's a, there's a chance you could reject your soulmate in that 37% window. Yeah. I mean, there are risks involved, right? Mm. So your perfect person could come along in your rejection phase, and you could get rid of them and then spend the rest of your life regretting the fact that you didn't just marry them. This only maximizes your chances of finding the perfect person for you. Uh, It doesn't guarantee it. Ah, math. Yeah, damn it. It ruins everything. (laughs) I think it makes everything brilliant. Okay, so let's say you've made it through your rejection phase found that perfect person within your 37% window. How do you know if it's going to last? And that's something that it turns out you can write a really beautifully simple set of equations to look at. Beautifully simple if you're a mathematician. So the equation is uh, W at T plus 1 equals little w plus RWWT plus IHM brackets HT. Mathematicians came up with this equation for love by studying how couples argue. A group of psychologists spent years filming couples having conversations. And they asked them, uh, for 15 minutes or so, I want you to talk about 
the most contentious issue in your relationship? Things like who does what around the house, working late, missing important events, money, in-laws. And during those conversations, the researchers monitored the couple's heart rates, their facial expressions, how much they were sweating. And they worked out a way to give them scores, so positive or negative scores, based on everything that happened in their interaction. And then those numbers, they got plugged into the set of equations Hannah just mentioned. We call it a coupled set of equations because you have one equation for the husband and one equation for the wife. So for the wife, better known as W, T plus one, how she will handle talking about a contentious issue with her husband is based on her general mood, little w, plus her general mood when she's with her husband, rwwt, plus how she reacts to the last thing that her husband says in that exact conversation, ihm brackets hd. With this information and a lot of calculations, they could predict whether or not people were going to get divorced with a 90% accuracy. Wow, how do you know? Uh, so there's a few things that are really big indicators, and these are patterns that only come out once you look at this mathematically. It's not just about because every every couple argue, right? Every couple are a little bit negative to each other at some point, but it's about how that negativity can spiral into something really out of control, and about how likely that is to happen. But the really important term in this equation is the influence that people have on one another, and in particular, something called the negativity threshold. Now, the negativity threshold um, you can think of as uh, how annoying the husband can be before the wife starts to get really pissed off, basically, um, and vice versa. Now, I always thought that good marriages were about compromise and understanding um, and allowing the person to have space to be themselves. So I would have thought that perhaps the most successful relationships were ones where there was a really high negativity threshold, where couples let things go and only brought things up if they really were a big deal. But actually, the mathematics and subsequent findings by the team have shown that the exact opposite is true. The best couples or the most successful couples are the ones with a really low negativity threshold. These are the couples that don't let anything go unnoticed and allow each other some room to complain. These are the couples that are continually trying to repair their own relationship, um, that have a much more positive outlook on their marriage. Couples that don't let things go um, and couples that uh, don't let trivial things end up being a really big deal. It's quite interesting to know that there is really mathematical evidence to say that you should never let the sun go down on your anger. This is very reassuring to know. It's pretty cool that, you know, with an equation, you can just predict if you're destined for a life of bliss. Well, maybe that's not quite true. It's more like these equations give us a language to be able to talk about conflict in long-term relationships in a way that you can't do if you just think really qualitatively. Yeah, I mean, most people don't think of math as a language, right? No, I know. And it just absolutely is. Um, so Galileo says that um, talks about the universe as though it's a book that's been written by God and everything in the universe is contained within this book. And then he says that the language of that book has to be mathematics. And it's just absolutely true. You can just describe everything around you, everything in the human world, everything in the natural world, everything in the physical world. At some level, you can use maths to describe it. Hannah Fry. Her TED book about this is called The Mathematics of Love. You can find out more about the book and see Hannah's full talk at TED.com. Finally this hour, that idea from Galileo that math is a language, well, it doesn't really matter whether you're a mathematician or a musician. Knowing the language, now I feel like I just my vocabulary increased. Huh. And so, therefore, I'm able to communicate my ideas even better. Drummer Clayton Cameron, he says studying math actually gave him a new confidence in how he played music. And I'm going to share a story just about my confidence in sitting down, knowing that if I do a certain thing, it's going to emote a certain feeling, yeah. if done right. So I'm playing at the Hollywood Bowl with James Brown, and I've been told that uh, by the musical director, Christian Bride, he said, look, you know, Clayton, 
James is a drummer, you know, Mr. Brown's a drummer, and, you know, he's he created this genre of music. So the chances are he may not like anything you play. Hmm. And I said, well, you know, I'm a professional. I've been around, and, I, you know, I understand that. So I talked to a couple of drummers, friends of mine that had played with James, just to get some insight. Listen to the record that James Brown had done. It was a jazz record called Soul on Top, 1969. But he never performed any of them. So I, there was one song called September Song that had a boogaloo beat. Oh, it's a long time. December. That was kind of like what was happening at the time when jazz guys would sit down. So I said, well, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to bring it up a little bit. I'm going to kind of do a little different beat on it. And I had, you know, I put a special snare up and, and then I worked on this little groove. So that was the groove. So we get to the rehearsal, we're playing, and, uh, and Kristen McBride calls off the song, and, uh, and James Brown has the pickup. And the lyric is, Oh, it's a dance. And then we're into the groove. I'm into my groove. Now remember, it's been told to me, it's been embedded in my head that James Brown is not going to like anything you play. Yeah. After we played that groove, James Brown turned around and said, Now that was funky. Wow. You know, so. Anyway, so that kind of stuff, you know, once you get into the numbers and you understand, that gave me the confidence to sit down and go, oh, I know what that is. The numbers are there. Clayton Cameron, you can watch his talk at TED.com. Because it's a mother. When I count to four, I want everybody to lay out and let the drummer go. And when I count to four, I want you to come back in. One, Hey, thanks for listening to our show this week, Solving for X, How Numbers Shape the World. Our production staff at NPR includes Jeff Rogers, Brent Bachman, Megan Kane, Neva Grant, and Chris Benderev, with help from Daniel Shukin. Barton Girdwood is our intern. In the front office, Eric Newsom and Portia Robertson-Migas. Our partners at TED are Chris Anderson, June Cohen, Darren Triff, and Janet Lee, and Guy Raz. And you've been listening to the TED Radio Hour from NPR. The name of those tunes is the funky drummer. <laughs> The funky drama. The funky drama. The funky drama.